Good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome all of our visitors from all across the world. <laughs> we see some old friends in the building, and it's good to see you as well. And uh, it's a privilege that we're able to gather together and come underneath the Word of God. And so this morning, we will continue in our study in Hosea. So if you would, please turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. You know, this text kind of reminds me of when uh, we're on our jobs or maybe we're at school in college and the professor or the person in charge goes over the safety rules. And you know how those kinds of meetings are. They're not happy, they're not enjoyable, but we do know that those warnings are there for a reason. And the danger is, is to sleep during the warnings. Can you imagine sleeping during the warnings and not knowing what to do when your lives are in danger? That's kind of the picture that we're seeing over and over Well, God, in a sense, is warning us to beware of the dangers that awaits us, the dangers that surrounds us. And so we want to think in that light, in that line of thinking, as we approach the text. There's something here that we can gather from the word of God. And so let us, let us go into the scriptures like treasure hunters looking for Jews that we can use for the rest of our lives. That's how we ought to value God's word. And so as we dive into the word of God, let us look into it with high expectation that God is speaking to us, that God is saying something valuable to us. So let us Let us go now to Hosea chapter 6. Please follow along with me as I read today's passage. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like, excuse me, a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah... A harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. 
Let us pray to the Lord our God. My Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the privilege to be able to hear your word again. Lord, it's a privilege to be able to hear from you, to hear what you have to say to us. We know that your word is effective. Your word will not return to you void. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to speak to us. Speak to us where we are. Speak to our circumstances. Speak to the trials we may face. Speak to the decisions we have to make. Lord, help us in our weakness. Grow our faith that we might leave here changed people. Have thine way, O God. We pray for the one who do not know you, the one who have not professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let today be the day that they will make you their Lord and their Savior. Work in their hearts, Lord, that they might be drawn to you. For we know no one can come unless you draw them. So, Lord, by the power of your spirit, give faith to the unfaithful. Give hearing ears to the deaf. Lord God, give sight to the blind. Lord, that we might all be saved and know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, help me today as I decrease Pray that you would increase the more. The people of God would not see me, but see you. Lord, I pray that you would use me as a tool in your hand. We ask these prayers in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I've entitled today's sermon, Do You Avoid Confessing Specific Sins? by presupposing that God knows. Um, Another title that could be used is simply Broken Promises. In this chapter, it reveals man's ability to sin even when convicted. Even with the heaviest convictions, man is still capable of going against the will of God for his or her life. So far, we've been reminded of how sin affects our relationship with God. And we've been told that despite our sinfulness, despite our failures, despite our neglect, God still loves us. What an amazing God that he will love us Despite all of the sin that we have committed in our lives, what a great encouragement to us as we look to Christ for our sanctification. This passage also shows how the people of God can be found in sin and still not fully repent. Sometimes the people of God can make some form of confession, but still hold back the sins that they have committed. And so as Christians, we are obligated to turn from sin and to turn to God fully and completely. Returning to the Lord is a constant theme, I mean a constant theme we will continue seeing throughout this book. In verses 1 through 3 of Hosea 6, the verse can be understood in either two ways, either as a response from the people in light of God's judgment pronounced in chapter 5 or through the prophet Hosea in order to reveal what true repentance is. So in one sense, Hosea can be explaining to the people what true repentance is, 
or he can be speaking on the behalf of the people, explaining their response. Whichever way one decides, the point is we need to pay close attention so that we might benefit from the word of God. And Hosea 6, 1 through 3 is a call to repentance. This makes total sense in light of the previous punishments described in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. For example, four of those, or three of those threats can be seen in the following verses. Hosea 4.19, a wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifice. Hosea 5 and 7, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. And then Hosea 5 and 12, but I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. These are examples of how they have received threats from God. God is promising them punishment because of their disobedience. And so now if you're taking notes, I want to look at two points for us this morning. Point number one, wholehearted confession. So what we're going to look at, wholehearted confession. And point number two is unacceptable repentance. Unacceptable repentance. Let's begin with wholehearted confession. In Hosea 5, if you look to the end of that chapter, the Lord states these words to his people. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. In other words, this is God's expectation. Unless you do this, I'm going to do that. Now, what we have to look for is whether or not the Israelites have expressed these qualities, these, this expectation that God wants from them. Now let's look again at our text beginning in verse 1. The text says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind, bind us up. So far, so good. Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds like these people have a, a good attitude towards the Lord. In, in this verse, they're expressing the need to repent. They recognize the value of returning to the Lord. In verse 1, it says, so that he may heal us. And at the end of the verse, they also added that the Lord will bind us up. There symbolizes that they're, that they're a broken people, that they need the Lord to bind them up. They need God's healing. They're, they're, they're recognizing the attributes of God. And so far, the people seem determined to get right with God. According to the text, they acknowledge that God caused their disasters. Let's look again at verse 1. There it state, states, he has torn us. They're, they're, they're recognizing that God has done this to us. And he has struck us down. So the people recognize that God has caused their calamities. In other words, they're recognizing that they deserve, it seems like they're recognizing they deserve what has happened to them. We can relate to that. We 
gone through trials and tribulations in our lives. We've been disciplined by the Lord. And at that time, it's hard for us to believe that God really loves us when he's disciplining us. Because in reality, it doesn't feel good. But here, they're recognizing that God is causing their pain or their difficulties or their trials. So they seem to be embracing this. Then in verse 2, the text says their response. After two days, he will revive us again. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. The people recognize that God is a merciful God. And this is true. God is a merciful God. And we ought to contemplate the mercies of God when we've been found in sin, when we recognize that we've broken the law of God or that we failed in keeping his commands. The scripture speaks to us concerning God's mercy. For example, in Psalm 145.9, the text says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So God rains down mercy on the just and the unjust, not giving us all what we deserve. Again, we're able to see the grace of God be extended to us. Also in 1 Peter 1, 3, the text says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And then it says, He has caused us to be born again, a living hope. We just talked about that, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's the reason why we have hope. He's the reason why we have confidence to live every day for the glory of God, despite what we're going through. So it's clear from the text that the people of Israel understood God's mercy. The expressions given in verse 3 seem to indicate this too. In this verse, the people of God continues on as if it was their intentions to draw close to God in a more intimate relationship. And if that's the case, this is a major heart surgery because we know who the Israelites are. We know that they have dishonored and they have worshipped idols. We know that they have fallen and have failed God often. But they seem to be trekking well. They, they seem to be going in the right direction. This, this seems to be a new direction considering all that we have heard. And if we were to read the text in that way, it definitely feels that way while we're reading the text. Listen again to the people's response in verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that waters the earth. In other words, God to us is in an abundance. He's available to us. And so at first, the people of God seem to have a change of heart. They seem like they were finally turning from sin to God. What a beautiful picture this would be that finally the people of God is turning to God. They appeared to have given up their old way of living. But but was they truly turning to God or Was it a performance? That's the question. We're going to do our investigative work here. What's going on in the text? And so 
They're saying all the right things. But I recall an old wise saying, and many of you know this, and you can help me out. Action speaks louder. Action speaks louder than words. And so we can expect why God would want that from the Israelites. It's as if they're saying that they're from St. Louis, the show me state. That that they need to to show that they are trusting God, not just profess the characters of God, not not just say with their words that God is good. We, We hear people say that all the time. Even people who are living in sin, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. That that have become a theme that people just latch on to. But if God truly is good, then why are we still living the way we're living with no hope, not trusting him, in him, not depending upon him, not calling upon his name, not going to his word that we might wallow in the word of God, that we might dominate or be dominated by the word of the living God. Why is that if God is so good? This is one of the challenges for us that we're to continue to get into the word of God and value the word of God. They seem to be valuing the word of God. And so in our text, they seem to be sincere in their response. But history tells us that this is an optical illusion. In other words, their faithless promises is like streams of water in a hot desert. The closer you think you are, the more it runs away from you and disappears into the desert sands, never to be seen again. The Israelites failed to acknowledge their own sins, though they knew about God's character. They were familiar with who who God was and what he did. They, They knew God, the one who have brought them out of Egypt, the one who fed them down from heaven, manna. They had bread to eat. The same God who allowed the birds to just sit there to be taken for food and who allowed his people to have their field. This is the same God. In other words, These people, the Israelites, was not acknowledging God as they should, which seemed to suggest that their sentiments ought not to be trusted. We know this because we have children, and children sometimes are are deceptive. Oh, mama, I, I promise you, I, I won't do it again. I, I promise you, dad, I, I won't do it. This is the last time. And then there's the other time when you have the little talk. And it's not enough for parents to hear their children to just say what they want them to, to say. But rather, they want to see begin practicing what they have commanded them to do. And God is expecting his children to follow suit that when he speaks for his word, they are to follow him. They are to follow his command. They are to acknowledge him as daddy. Daddy, I'll, I'll do it. Whatever you want, daddy. And so this is the kind of relationship that God wants with his people. He wants an intimate relationship. But that intimacy is is kept back from being all that it could be when there's sin in the camp. 
sin has to be removed before there can be intimacy with God. That's why a man or a woman has to be born again before they can come into a right relationship with God. There must be new birth because we can't go to God as we are. There must be a, a transformation. There must be a, a change. God is expecting change. As the Lord already has stated, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek his face with earnest desires, he will not address them. They, they wanted all of God's benefits, but they did not want to seek his face. They did not want to seek his face. They did not want to obey God's command. They were a stiff-necked people. They were a rebellious, hard-hearted, faithless, insensitive to the love of God kind of people. In other words, they were just like us. We're stiff-necked, faithless, rebellious. We're those kind of people. But the difference is, difference is God has saved us. God is sanctifying us. God is helping us that we might become more like Christ. And so we're reminded of that. We're reminded to, to come alongside the Israelites and identify with them as sinners. But to remember, on the other hand, that we've been saved by the grace of God. But it doesn't mean that we're not with obligation to follow the word of God, to live by the word of God. These people, they opposed God in his face from generation to generation. These Israelites should have given a penitent confession. But they refused to give a penitent confession because they weren't sorry for their sins. They weren't broken because of their sins. They only wanted God's benefits. They only wanted to be released from the consequences of sin. They did not hate sin. They loved sin. They did not want to come under the consequences that came to, with sin. They wanted to be free. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. But God said, no deal. God said, my way. They were a rebellious people. Max, your question. Are you broken over the sins you commit? Do you assume God would just forgive you on the basis that he already knows? That wouldn't be a wise choice. Do you feel that you have to admit your sins? Of course we have to. That's called confession. God wants us to confess our sins for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness confession is necessary before repentance we must acknowledge that we are a broken people and so confession requires that we admit our sins we must acknowledge that that wrong is wrong. This shows us that we are agree with God. To not admit sin is to not acknowledge it for what it is. It, it's offensive to a holy and perfect God. These Israelites instead presented themselves to the God who knows all things as self-righteous. The Lord did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners. If they had admitted their guilt, God would have saved them. 
They could have been spared, but because they would not truly repent, they remained in their sin. The Lord Jesus, while speaking to a self-righteous crowd who spoke down to the people with disgrace, told a parable about how sinners are justified only when they humble themselves before God and trust in him for their salvation. Turn with me to Luke 18. Let's turn there for a second. And there we're going to see an example between the righteous and the unrighteous. Here in this uh, text, the Lord is speaking to this self-righteous crowd about how sinners are justified only when they humble themselves before God and trust in him for their salvation. In Luke 18, beginning at verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the, in, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this guy next to me, a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then another example is, is written also in James 4 and 9. You don't have to turn there. Um, but it says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, these are prime examples of how sinners ought to confess their sins before God. The Israelites, or one could say the nation of Israel, did not have these kinds of sentiments. In comparison, these are two different kinds of confession. The latter admits the wrongdoing and the, the nation of Israel do not. They did not confess specifically their wrongdoing, but they did acknowledge that God was good, that God was merciful. They only wanted to be forgiven. In other words, they were not own their sins. They chalked it up as God already knows. I don't have to say it. God knows already. But this is not humility. Humility will come and have us to say what we don't want to say, and that is to acknowledge our sins. We must come before God broken. We must allow ourselves to be exposed. And so we must acknowledge sin and call it what it is. In opposition to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we shall no longer allow it to linger around us who enjoys being in the presence of a holy and righteous God. 
No, we, we need to be like this. We need to mourn and weep and allow laughter to turn to mourn. We need to be broken over our sins. We need to be like David has stated in Psalm 51, 10 and 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from from me, Lord, allow me to remain in your presence, Lord. Spend time with me. How many times have we promised the Lord that we would change? How many times have we struggled with the same sins over and over again? We truly wanted change. We, we wanted this time to be different. Instead, we were on our knees asking for God's forgiveness once again for the same sins. We, we hate it, right? We, we hate it. You do hate your sin. Amen? Amen. I just want to know y'all with me, right? We do hate our sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so we, we know sin is wrong and it hurts knowing that we have failed the Father, failed the Son, and failed the Holy Spirit. But I wonder if we're struggling with the same sins because we're falsifying our repentance and never admitting our struggle. Could that be the reason why we keep stumbling in particular sins? It's because we're not willing to acknowledge that we have a problem. We must address these sins individually and collectively as soon as we come to that knowledge. Someone here today may have thought that your own righteousness was enough to enter God's kingdom. I'm here to say that it's not. Nothing you do will be enough to satisfy God. So if you... If you've ever sinned at any given time in your life, past or present, you are disqualified from entering the kingdom of God. This is kind of like that safety class we was talking about. That if you're not mindful of the dangers, but in particular, this kind of danger will cost you eternity. This is that forever that you can't never rebound from. This is that kind of warning. And so I want to give you some good news. To be able to enter God's kingdom, we must first acknowledge our need for a savior. We must see him as necessary for our lives. If we do not see Christ as being necessary, we will not accept him as as Savior. No one but believers have access to God. Only the faithful has access through Jesus Christ. Why? Because, because, Not that they were righteous, because he was righteous. So it's not because they were righteous, they were sinners who humbled themselves. We are sinners who have humbled ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and saw our need for a savior. What did he do? He died for our sins. He was buried for our sins. He rose again for our sins from the grave with all power in his hand. It is now seated at the right hand of God. And so all of those who place faith in Christ will be saved. Don't think that there's another way. There's no other way according to John 14, 6. Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God requires us to have wholehearted confession. 
So let's stop being self-righteous, hard-hearted, light. Let's stop being light, self-righteous, hard-hearted Israel. Let us return to the Lord. Let us humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. It's good when sinners, saved by grace, confess their sins and draw from the promises of God. But it's not good when sinners assume God knows and take for granted God's forgiveness. God wants wholehearted confessions. Thomas Boston states, and I quote, Believers ought not to mourn over or confess their iniquities in a legal manner, viewing them as committed by persons under the covenant of works, but ought to confess and mourn over them as sins done against a reconciled father and breaches of his law as a rule of life, unquote. This leads me to my last point, unacceptable repentance. And we're going to move through this pretty quickly unacceptable repentance. Listen again how the Lord responds to Israel in verse 4. What, what, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What, what shall I do with you? It sounds like a parent, right? The child keeps breaking the rules, being disobedient, not following clear instructions. And then the parent says, what, what should I do with you, son? What's, what's going on with you? Why do you keep being disobedient? And this is the sentiments that God has towards his people. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. People of God appeared to have want to change, but in reality, they are like the dissolving smoke that vanishes quickly. In the beginning, they acknowledged the judgment of God, but they never renounced their old sinful ways. They have fallen back into doing the same old things. This is not true repentance. Thomas Brooks states it like this, and I quote, God who has made a promise to late repentance has made no promise of late repentance. And though true repentance is never too late, yet late repentance is seldom true, unquote. The Lord is not interested in a mere profession of faith it must be true repentance. Everything else is unacceptable. According to verse 1, we see that they seemingly wanted benefits, the benefits of God, but by practice, they disqualified themselves. They repented, but their repentance was fake. It was unacceptable. They were phonies. You would think of them as counterfeits. It's as if you're trying to get into this amazing event. Children, you can think of it as Disney World. You're trying to get into Disney World, but someone has given you a counterfeit ticket, and you're, you're, you're there up, up at the gate, and you're thinking with high expectations you can get in, but the person in charge says, I'm sorry, but this is a counterfeit ticket. And then they turn you away. That's the kind of hope one has without Christ. You may seem to be doing the right thing. And you may be getting praise from the world. And things may feel like you're doing good. But in the end, God is the one who checks the tickets. And so, 
In verse 5, we see the consequences of their actions. They constantly opposed God. They had a history of falling away from God and denying their faith. Because of this, the Lord responds in verse 5, Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. Because of the people's lack of faith, God sent forth his prophets to cut them to pieces with his words. God slaughtered the people with his words. Who can escape? Can anyone escape God? His judgment goes forth as light, touching everything. No one will escape the judgment of God. Christ is the light. He says, I am the light of the world. We must go to Christ. If not, the holy, righteous wrath of God will fall on us if we're found outside of the family of God. Then in verse 6, it points to their lack of love for God. The Lord states, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's as if God says, I'm sick of your your exercises. I'm sick of your practices. I want your heart. I want everything. I'm not taking backseat to no one. God wants us all. And that requires us to come humbly before our God. He expects wholehearted worship. And so that means when we come here, we're to come with with the mind to worship him, with the mind to give him glory and praise. Because if we're not worshiping the Lord, what, what are we doing? What are we here for? Why why are we wasting our time? The Lord wants full devotion. Can you say that you've been devoted to the Lord this week? If we could pull out the video evidence, what would the verdict be based on the evidence? Not how we feel, but based on the evidence, could you prove your devotion through your practice. We should be intentional with our habits and make sure we are bringing them beneath the sovereign plan of God. Don't neglect this discipline. We must practice it daily. Then in verses 7 and 8, the people People's sins are described in verse 7. The text says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They, there they dealt faithlessly with me. The point, the peop, the point, the, this point to the people's ongoing rebellion against God. They broke the covenant of God on a regular basis. Just like Adam, they violated the commands of God. They became a faithless people. Then the text goes on in verse 8 and says another description of their sinfulness. He says, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. This points to the time when the people should have had an encounter with God just as, just as Jacob did. Jacob toiled with God and his name was changed and he became Israel. Instead, they remained a faithless people. They continued in sin and became a city of evildoers, taking upon themselves the worst characteristics before a holy and righteous God. They are described as the old descendants of Jacob. They are still tricksters, trying to trick their way through life, still sinning and not trusting in God. In other words, they were never transformed. They were never transformed into the Israel, the people of God. 
Hosea is looking back, and once again, the priest, the priest is named and exposed because of their participation in the people's sins instead of guiding them with the word of God. We see this in verse 9 when the text says, As robbers lie and wait for men, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In other words, the priests had wicked plans to carry out in a place known for these kinds of things. The text says that they were on their way to Shechem. Shechem was a place that was known for people to be robbed. Uh, it was known for people to be taken advantage of. It's like saying some visitors come to town and you want to tell them, have a good time, but make sure you don't go to Shechem. But here we see the priests were on their way to Shechem. A falling away has happened in Israel, and they were being destroyed and punished. Now Judah is going down the same road. Listen to verses 10 and 11. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. In other words, Judah, unfortunately, is traveling in the same direction that Israel is. So as I conclude, we must remember that God never accepts false repentance. This is a warning to us to take sin seriously. We must remember to hate sin more than the consequences of sin. If we're going to be holy people of God, we must come to God humbly. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, it states, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Where, whereas worldly grief produces death. We must confess our sins wholeheartedly and fully turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then we must devote ourselves completely to the Lord in all of life. Jesus is Lord. If Israel was warned of these great dangers... So are we. So let's all beware of the dangers that we have heard, lest we fall. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is for your people. We pray that you would allow your word to penetrate us dominate us completely that we might be as your word has commanded us we might follow in obedience the word of the living God we ask all these prayers in Jesus name amen